African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. This is a very significant historical election. This crisis is still damaging, especially Finnish and European economies very hardly, and that's an important reason to get more and more co- cooperation. And uh, what we see here is a clear violation of one, the rights to privacy of uh, Tiwonge and uh, Stephen, and also we see Malawi violating its international commitments. Well, the position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting for marine species in particular. African Dialogue, a talk show where we cover anything and everything. Good morning, it's that time again. Welcome for African Dialogue. You're listening to us here on Channel Africa, your gateway to Africa and the voice of the African Renaissance. I'm Benjamin Mushatama. You're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. Well, if you're streaming us live, you're doing that on www.channelafrica.org. And if you haven't checked out our website, it's revamped, it's new, so go to our website to check it out. It's www. Now, let's move on. In today's program, we will be dissecting the judgment of the Oscar Pistorius trial, which seems to have shocked the international community last week. But before we get into that, let's get our news on Ellis Stenningba. And looking at your headlines this morning... SADC will not send any armed ground forces to Lesotho to oversee attempts to restore peace in the Mountain Kingdom. Twelve Nigerian soldiers sentenced to death for immunity and attempted murder of an army general are to be executed by firing squad. And all necessary precautions to prevent the outbreak of Ebola in Namibia are said to be in place. Regional body SADC will not send any armed ground forces to Lesotho to oversee attempts to restore peace in the Mountain Kingdom. This emerged after a regional emergency summit hosted by President Jacob Zuma in South Africa's capital Pretoria last night. SADC Chair Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe and his Botswana counterpart Ian Kama attended talks about Lesotho's security situation. On August 30th, an attempted coup by Regional General Tladi Tlamodi forced Prime Minister Tom Tabani to flee to South Africa. SADC has also called on Lesotho's political leaders not to meddle in the affairs of the military and other security establishments. Tepo Ikaneng has more. President Zumahed in the meantime appealed to Lesotho's leaders to support the SADC-led peace initiative. Part of the reason I'm saying we are optimistic is because uh, we would want that Lesotho gets back into normalcy as quickly as possible, and I think that is the wish of all of us, including the leadership of the Lesotho that is with us here. SADC leaders have also agreed to deploy defense and security observation mission in Lesotho to stabilize that country's fragmented defense and security establishments. 
Twelve Nigerian soldiers have been sentenced to death for mutiny and attempted murder of an army general. A military tribunal in the capital, Abuja, found that the soldiers from the 7th Division shot their commander, Major General Ahmed, Ahmed Mohammed, in mid-May in Maiduguri, the capital of the northeastern state of Bono. The junior officers revolted after accusing Mohammed of negligence during an ambush by militant group Boko Haram in Maiduguri that led to the death of dozens of soldiers. The 12 soldiers are to be executed by firing squad. The court did not specify when the sentencing would be carried out. Six Egyptian policemen have been killed and two injured today when a roadside bomb exploded as they passed through a volatile part of the northern Sinai in an armored convoy. Militants in Sinai have stepped up protection policemen and soldiers since then. Army Chief Abdel Fattah al-Sisi toppled President Mohamed Morsi of the Muslim Brotherhood in July last year. The Department of International Relations in South Africa has appealed to its citizens whose family members traveled to Nigeria's TB Joshua Church service to contact them. The family of one South African says a man, they man died in the building collapse. The department has, however, not confirmed any South African deaths so far. The building collapsed in Lagos, Nigeria, killing at least 45 people. South Africa's International Relations spokesperson Nelson Khwete. So far, we have not been able to confirm whether there were South Africans amongst those that perished and those that were injured. Our officials visited hospitals, they visited mortuaries, and uh, we are still not able to confirm if there were any South Africans affected. And finally, all necessary precautions to prevent the outbreak of Ebola in, in Namibia are now in place. The Deputy Director of Epidemiology in the Ministry of Health, Clementine Munro, delivered an update in the capital Vendok on Namibia's preparedness for the Ebola virus disease. Freaky Veles has more. These include cases of dengue fever from Angola, treated at the Vintuk Central Hospital earlier this year, and Congo fever cases from time to time at places such as Riobot, south of the capital, and Gubalbis to the east of Vintuk. Murua indicated that the health ministry has active disease surveillance mechanisms in place, with disease surveillance officers appointed in every region. And recapping on your top stories, SADC will not send any armed ground forces to Lesotho to oversee attempts to restore peace in the mountain kingdom. Twelve Nigerian soldiers sentenced to death for mutiny and attempted murder of an army general are to be executed by firing squad. And all necessary precautions to prevent the outbreak of Ebola in Namibia are said to be in place. Channel Africa News. Thank you so much, Jonella, for that news update. Remember, you are listening to African Dialogue with me, Benjamin Moshatama. And uh, remember, go to our website. It's new, it's fresh, it's really looking good. So go visit us on www.channelafrica.org. If you're listening to us via shortwave and you want to check out the new website, go there. And uh, there's also a great streaming facility there where you can uh, stream us live. And uh, remember that African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central. African time. Interact with us during this hour. You can do that by your SMSs. SMS us on plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. Let me give you that SMS again. It's plus two seven 
0826-823-325905. As I mentioned before the news, that today we'll be dissecting the judgment of the Oscar Pistorius trial, which seemed to have shocked the international community last week. There are various thoughts and uh, discussions about this particular outcome. And the murder trial of the Paralympic star Oscar Pistorius lurched to a close on Friday when he was convicted of culpable homicide in the shooting death last year of his girlfriend, Rieva Stienkamp. But in a case that reflected South Africa's complicated obsession with race, crime and celebrity, many South Africans found understanding the verdict to be as difficult as really trying to fathom exactly what was in Pistorius' mind the night he pulled the trigger. Lawyers say that often the sentences are very light, but to help us really debunk the myths and innuendo around this case, we're joined on the line by uh, Brad Kliban, who is an LLB graduate and an international business law graduate, and he's currently a Master's of Laws candidate at Harvard Law School, and uh, today Brad speaks to us from Massachusetts in the USA. As well, we have uh, Temba Langa, who is a senior partner at Langa Attorney. He's speaking to us right here from Johannesburg. Now, let me start with you, Temba. Looking at uh, uh, this particular trial, did Judge Masipa get it right by convicting Oscar Pistorius with culpable homicide instead of murder? Yes, he did. Um, I mean, I think she she got it right. She applied the law Mm. um, as as, uh, as required. And I'm actually very uh, surprised that... um, the comical hysteria hmm. that um, that some of the uh, legal experts have uh, have come to to characterize her judgment. I mean, if you really look at um, how she reasoned um, her ruling, it's simply based on two things. The first point is that uh, she accepts that I mean, uh, Oscar has foreseen that his conduct of shooting through the toilet door, you know, was wrong, you know? Hmm. That, that is the first thing that you need to establish. And I think she established that, that subjectively, uh, Oscar foresaw the possibility that uh, his consequences of shooting through the door, you know, were wrong. But then the second element that also needs to be satisfied is whether did he reconcile himself, himself with the consequences of his conduct? You know, mm-hmm. and then th- that means that did he appreciate the consequences? Did he did he reconcile himself that whatever is going to come out of my shooting, you know, that I would appreciate, and that that would be what I want to to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, in my view, that I think then the judge then uh, looked into the um, took uh, looked into the evidence of the neighbor. Remember that there was a neighbor who came just after the shooting who mm. found uh, Oscar crying hysterically. Mm. And then the judge said that uh, she found the evidence of that witness to be credible. That witness is a witness who said that uh, he found uh, Oscar crying hysterically and Oscar was uh, asking God for atonement and also to, uh, to, to, to let the river uh, stay alive, you know. Mm. I think she accepted by accepting that evidence from that witness, she then uh, concluded that Oscar then did not appreciate the consequences of his conduct. And uh, that, that is my view, but it will appear to be correct. Mm. 
definitely. Yes, so, I, so I think it's correct. Yeah, I think I think she's totally correct. I mm, mean, mm. in her own reasoning, and mm. even even according to to the law. You see, if if ever she could have rejected the evidence of the witness, then she could have then found him guilty because she would have then said that I don't accept the evidence of that neighbour, and therefore you you acted knowing very well uh, that uh, you you appreciate the consequences of your of your conduct. Mm. Well, let me move to Brad. Brad, do you agree with what uh, Temba is highlighting there? Uh, I just didn't understand the last part. But as far as I see, um, the argument is that the court um, found that Oscar Pistorius, in the manner in which he acted, um, did not accept, uh, or even though he he had foreseen that he might be shooting someone behind the door, did not accept that that may result in murder. So his Mm. intention wasn't to kill the person behind the door, which is the reason why we haven't found or dollars eventually. So I understand that, and I understand that the reason the court reached such a decision is because of the evidence which was presented by the state. Mm, definitely. Uh, the issue has been racialized on Twitter because we are seeing a bit of a divisive or maybe uh, confusion when it- there is a comparison that's being made, especially when it comes to the Pistorius trial being compared to the conviction of musician Jube Jube, who was convicted of murder following the 2010 drag race incident that claimed the lives of four school children left to others injured. Clearly, Jube Jube's accident wasn't intentional. However, we see here in Pistorius's case, who handled the weapon, shot through a door, but is being given culpable homicide. Surely this doesn't make sense somewhere down the line, Brad. I think it depends on the circumstances which surround, uh, you know, the the sexual scenario of the case. Um, I'm not too familiar with the Chip case, although I followed it through the media and I have mm. not read the judgment myself. So I wouldn't want to mislead your, you know, your, your listeners mm. by giving some type of opinion. But as far as I understand, when you look at the intention, which is the legal intention used by the court, of course that is problematic because that's a technical concept which confuses many members of the general public. Mm. When you talk about dollars eventualities, which is one of the big issues in this case, you're looking at whether firstly, the person foresaw the possibility that their conduct is going to result in the murder of another person mm. um, or in the killing of another person. The second element of that test, you ask whether the person reconciled themselves to that, to that fact. So did they reconcile themselves to the risk that they may murder another person and proceeded with their action? Now, in incidents such as, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Dukin situation, mm. uh, I think the court concluded that you know, they could reconcile themselves to the possibility that their conduct may result in murder. Mm. The situation with Oscar Pistorius is different because he was relying on what we call a private defense. What he was saying is that he acted in a situation where he perceived that he was an immediate risk and that he and Ms. Yenkamp were immediate risk and then acted on the basis of that. He further said that he did not intend to kill the person that was behind the door. Now, that of course, is what has angered many members of the public because the state is then required to prove what was in Oscar's mind at the time. And that is extremely difficult to prove. Mm, def- uh, you know, so it's understandable that the public would be upset about the outcome, mm. but that's just you know, a fact, a legal fact of our law. Mm.
Mm, definitely. Uh, Temba, in your piece that you wrote uh, for Sowetan in the opinion analysis uh, uh, kind of um, column, you highlighted some of these issues about the complexities of it. Let me quote you a little bit here on what you, you write in this piece titled Masipa's Task Found Justice Not True. But the complexity of the matter is very clear in the view of the fact that there were no witnesses or any sort of voice or visual recordings of the accident which could have insisted the judge. Where there are no witnesses, the prosecution is always going to have difficulties in proving its case in view of the standard of proof applicable in criminal cases. It should be remembered that any reasonable doubt that arises in the criminal case on key issues always works in favor of the accused person. And uh, so, I don't know if we have someone else on the line. I think we have William Booth there. Uh, William, can you just be... uh, uh, here with us, uh, we, we're still trying to conduct this particular uh, um, conversation. But uh, Temba, in terms of looking at uh, the complexities there, uh, why is that element of a witness so important, and uh, uh, why is it that uh, it overrides uh, the situation itself? Because here we see a man who actually went in front of a door and shot someone, and uh, it's 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 actually confusing for me uh, listening to what you guys are saying. No, look, uh, look. I mean, it's not confusing to go back to the Chukchuk case. The Chukchuk case, I mean, uh, I've got no reason to believe that, uh, or rather to doubt that um, Sweet Chukchuk uh, um, appeal and then argue along the lines that uh, uh, Masipa has made a ruling. Chukchuk, uh, you know, there's a possibility that he may also get... Um, to find guilty on capable uh, homicide instead of murder, as it is the case now. Because you see, the issue there is that, yes, in the first leg, your conduct is, uh, is wrong, you know. However, the second leg is the tricky one. Whether you knew that through your wrong conduct, this, uh, the consequences that would have occurred uh, were foreseen. That is always the trick. And I think that with uh, the two case, I mean, it would appear that these guys were track racing. Yes, their behavior was negligent. <clears throat> However, did they foresee that it would end up with a death of four or five kids, you know? And that is the issue. Because, as you know, you find that, I mean, like it happened in another case of Price Moves, the footballer, where he, he, he collided um, with a the, with the pedestrian while he was trying to avoid another. And, and then the court also found that, look, I mean, he did not foresee that he was going to collide with that pedestrian while he was avoiding to to, to knock down. It was while he was avoiding another who had just walked through his path. So I would think that uh, the two cases also presents itself as a you know as a as a as a typical case where if everything uh, is proven according to the test of delusive injustice, it may come to the same conclusion. And mm. about the difficulties of having witnesses. Look, in those situations, you know, uh, the, the court, like in this regard, they've, uh, they've applied all the principles. They've looked into the issue that there was only one version, and and that is a difficulty. So, in my view, when the judge looked into the second leg of the of the discard, uh, of the uh, of the test, that's where then because this guy shot four shots through the door. Mm-hmm. And the only way that the judge could be able to defend or to establish is whether did he appreciate the consequence of his conduct or not. 
then she, in my view, she relied on the evidence of the of the of the neighbor who said this guy was remorseful and all that. Mm. And I mean, that's about all that you get. I mm. mean, and even in her judgment, she made reference to the evidence of that neighbor. Mm, definitely. Yeah. Now we also have William Booth, the criminal law expert, who joins us from uh, Italy. Uh, William, um, we are joined by Brad Kibani and uh, Tamalanga, both uh, legal experts. In terms of saying, hey, they agree with uh, this particular judgment by Judge Masipa. Do you agree as well with this particular uh, decision made? Sorry, I must say the the contact is very bad. I can hardly hear anything. Yeah, definitely. Um, I can't hear what the other panelists are saying. Yeah. And I'm just in a very, very, very bad spot. Just Maybe I can just quickly give my uh, input on it. Um, yeah, definitely. I certainly don't agree with the ruling on the murder charge with regard to the concept of uh, dolus eventualis. I think the world now knows what that uh, phrase means, but, but at least that's some, you know, some progress made with regard to our criminal justice system. But certainly I, I think she did not apply the facts properly to the law. Um, on the issue of um, murder pertaining to um, premeditation or planning, I think she was spot on with that. There was no evidence to justify any finding along those grounds. Um, because, you know, the factual situation is simple. Uh, Oscar went to get his firearm, got it ready to shoot, mm. went to door five, four times yeah. into a tiny, tiny mm. little space, knowing full well that there was a person on the other side. Mm. Now, not to have reasonably foreseen, that's now him subjectively, that he would hit somebody on the other side and with a bullet, which would obviously... Uh, lead to that person dying. I mean, I find that rather uh, problematic that, um, you know, that finding wasn't made. Mm, Definitely. Uh, I also find that very uh, bizarre as well, William, and and it's a a question I also pose to Temba, but it seems like uh, uh, there are other factors that uh, uh, factor into this particular issue. But, uh, William, staying with you, the media especially has taken issue with this principle of uh, dolus eventualis, which means that the perpetrator foresees the consequences of his or her actions, yet carries on anyway. Uh, You've actually uh, kind of highlighted that there's a problem in this particular issue. Uh, but also looking at uh, dealing with the other uh, charges, looking at the two of the three firearm charges against him, uh, he, uh, the judge acquitted Pistoria, saying the state had failed to provide enough evidence. What is your reaction to that uh, particular judgment? Well, first of all, in respect to the shooting through the vehicle roof, Uh, You know, you had uh, two other very pathetic witnesses, and the judge said, well, you know, Oscar and the uh, the state witnesses were all bad witnesses. So I think, you know, probably there that she, you know, didn't have much option, uh, and the whole issue is truth beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. So, you know, I don't don't really uh, have much criticism of that. On the ammunition charge, she um, said that you've got to have intention to possess the ammunition. And, um, for example, if you pick up, you know, some ammunition alongside the road and you're on your way to hand it over to the police, although you are physically in possession of the ammunition, you didn't have the intention to unlawfully possess it. But now, 
I, you know, in this instance, Oscar was obviously in possession of this ammunition for some time. Mm. And, you know, the state probably didn't present sufficient evidence as to how long he was in possession. Uh, you know, his version was, well, you know, intended it was his father's ammunition, therefore he didn't have the intention to unlawfully possess it. So I think the judge criticized the state. Maybe they needed to present more evidence hmm. um, pertaining to, you know, how long he was in possession. And it's all, again, a subjective test. You don't got to look into the mind of the of the accused. And she said the state didn't present enough evidence on, on that uh, ammunition charge to establish that he had the necessary intention. So, you know, there's not enough evidence, well, then, um, you know, a court cannot find beyond a reasonable doubt. So mm. on that score, I don't have an, a major issue. Uh, you know, my main, my main criticism relates to the murder charge mm. um, on the uh, non-planned uh, or non-premeditated uh, murder charge. I think there was enough evidence there, circumstantial, and looking at Oscar's version, which she criticised, uh, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt on that charge. Mm, definitely. Now, uh, Timber, now coming back to you, uh, William is highlighting uh, some uh, issue here that as an ordinary person, I don't really uh, understand. Maybe you could help me in terms of uh, looking at uh, what makes a credible witness, what makes a credible uh, uh, witness in terms of someone who will stand behind uh, uh, and, and, and speak because it's very difficult to figure out what makes a bad witness because uh, with these um, uh, firearm charges, it seems like the, there was not good witnessing. So how do we establish a good witness in court? Look, I mean, it depends on that. One of the factors, uh, like the judge said, um, about um, the evidence of um, Oscar, was that he was evasive. I wanted you to a witness. So that aspect of how you take questions and how do you respond and how do you cooperate with the uh, with the court? Because I could have gone into the those across the menu. It's also important. I can't hear anything. And remember that I mean, uh, in respect of uh, the other witnesses, like are you there? Yeah, we're still here. I think yeah. we lost William, but you can carry on, Timber. Yeah. So, so, but then in respect of the the witness that um, the court has accepted, say, uh, his evidence, the neighbour, mm. it was what the court observed to be truthfulness. But you see, in a trial court, like in this matter, the, the judge who goes through the trial mm. has the best advantage than the judge who's going to come on appeal. But the, the judge who's sitting at trial has the advantage of observing the conduct and, and to observe how um, and to, of, to, to establish whether um, this witness, in terms of taking questions and all that, is truthful or not, you know. So it is all those type of issues. And after the judge has established the, uh, on the conduct of the witness and whether the, this witness was uh, was truthful hmm. in his or her uh, taking of questions, then then the judge will then decide whether can I rely on this evidence or not. Hmm, definitely. Yeah. Then the dead one comes later. Yes. Okay. And and Brad, coming to you, in terms of uh, looking at uh, the final verdict, two between the judge and her two assessors carries more sway at arriving at a conclusion. In this case, the verdict on Pistorius, how do we come to that final decision? 
okay, so I, I understand you were asking two questions. The first one relates to the assessors in the case. Mm. Um, the problem with assessors, and assessors are important because they're supposed to guide and advise the judge. Mm. Um, however, it's the judge who takes the final responsibility for the judgment. Um, I, it, as far as the assessors are, are concerned, um, the, you know, the advice of the assessors may come at a later point when the, the case goes on appeal, but as far as the final decision in a particular situation is concerned, and this is largely because of our constitutional framework, it's the judge that takes the final um, decision in the case. Mm-hmm. As far as how we got to the final verdict, look, mm-hmm. I, I think we need to get one thing clear, and this mm-hmm. is something that Mr. Mr. William put raised when we were talking to you earlier on. Mm-hmm. The public objection to the final verdict is that Oscar Pistorius intended to kill someone, um, and that it's irrespective of who that intention was when he was thinking at the time, he intended to kill someone. There mm-hmm. are two problems with this approach. The first approach is that intention must be subjective and relates to a specific person. Um, a few specialists or uh, you know, experts who have written on the issue say that uh, Oscar Pistura should, should have been found guilty on the basis of what's called an error in objecto, or where you intend to kill A but end up killing B, should you be found guilty of killing B? Hmm. The judge, in my view, rightfully you know, made the correct decision in this regard because even if my intention is to kill A, in attempting to kill A, I kill B, the state must also show that I possess the necessary intention to kill B. So in case of dollars eventualists, you'd say that I, I wanted to kill A, but I foresaw the risk that in trying to kill A, the bullet might deflect and I may kill B, and I accepted that as a necessary consequence of my conduct. So the, the public anger at you know, and the staying at the judgment has been because we assume that Oscar Pistorius must have intended to kill whoever it was that was behind the door. But the state must have proved that he intended to kill that person. His defense is that he thought he was at risk at, at the time and he reacted by shooting at the door. Um, and at that time, he didn't know where Ms. Camp was. So I think that needs to be clarified for the public to properly engage with the judgment without saying justice has not been fair. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Benjamin Mushatama. Uh, we have uh, Brad Kibane, who is uh, currently a Master of Laws candidate at Harvard Law School. And uh, we are looking at uh, the issue of uh, the Oscar Pistorius trial and the judgment. And also we have a senior partner at Langer Attorneys, Tema Langer, joining us uh, to really dissect what happened in this particular case. Earlier on, we had to let William Booth go because I think there had problems with the line there. He's a criminal law expert and he was joining us from Italy. Now, we're going to continue after this break, but what are your views about the judgment made uh, by uh, Judge Masipa last week? Do you think that it was fair? Uh, We're hearing some uh, uh, technical issues that are being raised by uh, the legal experts on the program today. Let us know your thoughts. SMS us on plus two seven eight two three. 325905. That's plus 278233259905. We'll continue uh, to wrap up this discussion after this short break.
Is missing your favorite Channel Africa radio shows? Well, now you don't have to. We have a free catch-up service that allows you to listen to Channel Africa radio content from your cell phone, computer or tablet at your convenience. Visit www.channelafrica.co.za and click on programs for a list of your favorite shows. Select what you want to hear. Click on listen and enjoy Channel Africa radio. It's as easy as that. Channel Africa Radio, the voice of the African Renaissance. Indeed, go to our website www.channelafrica.org and uh, check out our new website. It's uh, very amazing. It's great. Uh, very simple links and uh, also different options on how you can find news and other content that's on the website. The website is www.channelafrica.org. Today we are dissecting the judgment of the Oscar Pistorius trial and uh, we have Brett Libane who is uh, joining us uh, from Massachusetts in the USA and is currently a Master of Laws candidate at Harvard Law School, as well as Temba Langa, a senior partner at Langer Attorneys. Now, uh, I want us to move on to uh, just the way that um, Oscar was uh, portrayed, Temba. Uh, the prosecution has portrayed Pistorius as a volatile, spoiled, jealous person and possessed with guns. Would you say this is how... Uh, it became uh, evident that uh, uh, this was a kind of a, a personal assassination uh, kind of an approach to uh, Oscar Pistorius's character. Look, it was not an assassination. An assassination. It was a correct observation. I mean, the, um, the evidence which really was showed uh, uh, rather the demonstrated in court. I mean, it really showed that, indeed, that was his character. Mm. Remember that there was a witness who came, who was called by the defense, who explained why he was always trusting in his guns, mm. and that he was always anxious, and he said uh, that the level of anxiety or impediment was created by his disability. Mm. And it was at that point that the state said that, no, they must then need to take him to the best copies for mental observation. Mm. So I think it was a fair assessment. Even their own the expert witness from the defense, it did say that. You know, so I wouldn't say it was a it was an assassination of his character. Mm, Brad, do you agree? Yeah, I yes, do no, agree. I, 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 I was saying I certainly agree. I think um, the information and the evidence that was available to the prosecution, as well as to the court, and this included, you know. Vi- visual evidence such as videos um, and other persons who were were witnesses that were brought before the court gave the correct impression. I think the prosecution was correct to proceed on uh, on that basis. I don't, however, think it was very helpful in reaching, you know, the verdict that the prosecution wanted. I do think it will come into play later on when the court has to decide on the issue of sentencing Mm. um, and how much time uh, Mr. Pistorius will end up spending in prison. So I think it was necessary and it will come up later on when the court has to decide, um, you know, on the sentence. 
Mm. And what length of time can Pistorius face on this charge of culpable homicide, uh, Brad? Um, well, culpable homicide doesn't have uh, you know, a minimum sentence, so mm. he can spend up to 15 years in prison. Mm. Um, but he won't necessarily spend 15 years. He may spend less time because he doesn't have minimum sentencing. Um, the court generally has to consider several factors when deciding on the sentencing. And in South Africa, we use a metric which we call um, you know, the Zin triad. Among other things, the court will consider the nature of the crime that has been committed, the offender and the interest of society. And generally, the crime um, you know, and the offender, those will be considered to be um, you know, aggravating circumstances. So if the crime is serious and the interest of society says they must spend time in prison, those will be aggravating circumstances. And then the personal circumstances of the, def- you know, of the defendant or the, the person who's been convicted, um, usually play a mitigating uh, factor. So questions such as his disability, um, his role in society, his personal circumstances, etc., those would play a, a huge role in mitigating, um, you know, the sentence on his favor. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to this um, uh, issue of uh, uh, racializing this um, uh trial because it, it has been racialized a lot uh, and Temba maybe I should ask you this do you think that Oscar Pistorius benefited from a background of white privilege I don't think so mm. I, don't, I think the, uh, the, the judge used the legal principles and I mean this was not the first case where these legal principles uh, were utilized um, these legal principles utilized in Oscar's case were utilized as well in the case of Bryce Moose, the footballer, mm. and prior to that they were also utilized in the case of the taxi driver from the Western Cape uh, who crossed um, the railway line uh, when all other cars ahead of him were queued, if you remember the story. Mm. And then he attempted to cross the railway line and, I mean, and then the a train just, uh, you know, hacked and collided with his uh, minibus taxi, mm. killing about 10 to 11 kids in the, uh, who were in that bus. So, you see, if this was the first principle, it was the first time the principle there was utilized, and I would say probably, but now it's not. Mm. I have to argue that and say, Brad, this guy had so many resources, so much money. If I had to go uh, to court, I wouldn't be able to afford the lawyers that uh, uh, Oscar uh, can afford. And uh, I don't know, does the money factor uh, make a difference? Yes, you see, (laughs) this is something I I, I wrote about immediately after the trial you know, the verdict had come out. Mm. And I think we have to be very careful and nuanced in our discussion. Mm. I think Oscar Pistorius' situation brings important questions about access to justice in South Africa. Mm. But those are general issues which are not related to Oscar Pistorius as the individual. What are those questions? So I think yes, I think it's very important for us to raise these issues of, you know, Justice is related to how much you can afford, whether or not you can afford an expensive uh, you know, lawyer such as Beru, um, and the fact that when your case boils down to complex technical issues such as the case, such as this case, um, a good lawyer on your behalf will do wonders you know, for the type of verdict that you get. At the same time, I think we should be careful not to impose unnecessarily on Oscar Pistorius you know, the 
general challenges that are facing South Africa and the judiciary in particular. So I don't think that we have to say just because it's a white male who got off. I think we have to say that there is a privilege, and that's something you cannot deny, and see how the judiciary should need to address that for all individuals that are facing allegations of criminal behavior, rather than for individuals who have money to end up you know, getting better defenses because they can afford it. I think that's a discussion we should be having, and that's not something specific to Oscar's story. It's just something that is facing our judicial system and because of the economic, social, and political challenges that we face. Okay, let's wrap it up. We only have five minutes left. Now, Temba, uh, there's a lot of talk about appealing the uh, decision that has been made uh, in this particular uh, trial. Are there any grounds for an appeal, and what exactly will be the basis of that appeal if that actually happens? Look, I mean, as I said, uh, I could see now at this stage, I don't see any ground, to be honest. I mean, but I'm, I'm not saying it cannot be raised, mm. you know. I mean, clearly, from newspaper reports, the state is, it appears to be unhappy. Mm. That is the NPA. And uh, I think they felt, I mean, generally, uh, there's a feeling that Dulce Venturi's principle was not utilized properly. But the issue that, you know, the issue of Dulce Venturi has changed uh, with the case of Humphrey. So, but that, from my perspective, uh, I don't think uh, there's any prospect of appeal. Brad, your case there the, when it comes to appealing? Come again. Uh, yes, I, I agree with I agree with. Them. I don't think um, the state has a very strong case. I've seen arguments that the you know the judge misapplied the principles of um, error in objector, and that that's the basis on which. It's they should appeal. I don't think that's a very strong argument. Having read the case this morning, I think it might be a waste of further state resources. Um, I think the state should focus on making a strong argument for his sentencing, but I don't think it's necessary to appeal the verdict. Mm, definitely. Well, how do you think this uh, whole televising the uh, the case has changed the way we see the legal system in South Africa, Brad? Do you think it's changed the way we, we see uh, our justice system? I, look, I, I think, and this is, uh, I, I think that's a very important question. I think there's a huge distinction between what this case has done within South Africa and what this case has done outside of South Africa. I was fortunate enough on the first, the first day of the verdict, um, I got to interact with you know, some judges here in the United States, including um, federal judges and the former chief justice of the state. Mm. And one of the things that came up during the discussion and the former judge of the constitutional court was present, um, one of the things that came up was how the judiciary in South Africa has handled this with integrity mm. in the face of you know, the public perception that has been demanding otherwise. And... I take pride in the fact that Judge Masipa, even when she was faced with the public perception that Oscar Pistora should be guilty, mm. with a huge you know, media reportage of the situation, she still dealt with the matter on the basis of the law as it was presented before her, on the basis of the facts that were presented before her. And whether or not we're happy with the decision, that's what we have done as a country. We've given the country over to the, you know, we've given that responsibility to the court, and I'm really proud of that. Mm. Temba, do you, are you proud as well of uh, how we handled it? I totally it? agree. Mm. I totally agree. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think uh, that Judgment Sipas really showed her seniority. She was confident. She was fearless. And, I mean, the, I mean, the, I think they could have anticipated the, the, the public backlash, you know. 
And I think revising this matter just showed one thing, that the South African public is not well-versed with our, with our legal system. Mm, definitely. Yeah. I, I have to agree with that because when I heard the judgment, uh, I was in the office, I was so upset. I was like, how does this happen? But I think uh, it's kind of we need to create an understanding from the public and create a, a platform where we understand our legal system. But thank you, Temba. Uh, that's Temba Langer, the senior partner at Langer Attorney, speaking to us from Joburg. And uh, we also had uh, Brad Kibane, who is an LLB graduate, an international business law graduate as well. He's currently a Master of Laws candidate at Harvard Law School. Uh, Thank you to both of you uh, for joining us here on Channel Africa. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, it's time for us uh, to move on. It's 11.45 and uh, Amanda Machak has just walked in into the studio. She's going to give us our business news today. But remember, go check out our website, www.channelafrica.org, www.channelafrica.org. Check out our new website and uh, you can check out the different personalities. Maybe you want to know who Amanda is. You'll find her a picture there on our website and uh, I don't know if she still needs to get a picture. I, always, I told her yesterday that I didn't see a picture of her on the website. So she really needs to get up to that and make sure that we have her picture on the website. But go check it out. It's very, very fresh. So let's move on to our economics update with Amanda. Thank you, Benjamin. Good morning. Three United Nations agencies dealing with nutrition issues suggest that the number of people in the world without food to eat has declined to 805 million between 2012 and 2014, down from over a billion between 1990 and 1992. The figures have confirmed a positive trend which has seen the number of hungry people decline globally by more than 100 million over the last decade and by more than 200 million since 1992. The Food and Agriculture Organization, the International Fund for Agricultural Development and the World Food Programme say this is now within reach if appropriate and immediate efforts are stepped up. The MDG hunger goal has already been met in East and Southeast Asia and in Latin America and the Caribbean. The International Infrastructure and Investment Electromining Conference is underway in Johannesburg, bringing together leading public, private and financial institutions to highlight African solutions for African challenges in the transport, energy and water infrastructure sectors. The two-day program will include keynote speeches, ministerial debates, panel discussions, as well as project profiles on the current infrastructure realities impacting SADC. The conference is the largest mining exhibition in Africa. South Africa's mining, rather Ministry of Energy, is hosting a two-day Agas Africa Liquid Petroleum Gas Conference in Cape Town. The event is the latest edition in the successful series of global Agas LPG conferences. It is a platform for industry stakeholders, investors and government representatives to convene and share best practices and overcome challenges associated with improving access to liquid petroleum gas across Africa. The conference, which opened today, will offer South Africa's Department of Energy an excellent opportunity to highlight continued diligent work done by the department in order to ensure energy security for all South African citizens. 
And London-listed Petra Diamonds has sold a rare blue diamond found at its mine in South Africa for $27.6 million, falling short of the price some analysts had expected it to fetch. The company recovered the 122.52 carat diamond in June from its Carlin and mine just outside Pretoria. Petra says the diamond was purchased by a partnership comprising itself and a polishing partner who wished to remain anonymous. On to your financial indicators. The U.S. dollar is trading at 11.2 South African rand, at 8.96 Botswana Pulas, and at 6.17 Zambian Quatches. It is also trading at 0.61 to the British pound and at 0.77 to the euro. Gold is trading at 1. $1,235 and platinum at $1,363 an ounce. And finally, the price of print crude is at $97.90 a barrel. That's all for now. I think there's a good reason that uh, we one minute early for the sports bulletin today because uh, we have the boss of uh, the sports desk uh, reading the news today. Tabiso, uh, why are you so early, man? It's called efficiency. My fans can't wait. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Let's move on to our business. No, to our sports update. <laughs> Thanks, Benjamin, and good day to sports fans once again, starting with Athletics News. Athletics South Africa is happy in that the sports has stabilized following the election of the new leadership just over three months ago. Since the new leadership came into office, more and more South African athletes are now taking part in local and international competitions. Temba Shiba has the story. It all started with the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow and now recently the IWAF Continental Cup in Morocco. The vastly improved standard that has seen South Africa's athletes put in a strong showing in the Continental Cup has put the country back on the international map. The country's athletes contributed five medals, two gold, two silver and a bronze, in the two-day competition, Kotomukwena, the Commonwealth and African champion, finished off a resurgent season with silver in the triple jump. His leap of 17 meters and 35 centimeters in his second attempt was 13 centimeters off the winning jump, but enough to set a new national triple jump record. Wade van Niekerk kept off proceedings by holding off a late charge by the European team's Martin Rooney in the final event of the competition, the 4 by 400 meters relay. Van Niekerk anchored the African team as they claimed gold ahead of Europe and the much-fancied America's team. Africa finished the Continental Cup third on the standings behind the Americas and Europe who took the competition. On to soccer news. Former Nigeria striker Obefami Martins is eyeing a return to the national team in the light of the Super Eagles' failure to find the back of the net in the current Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers. The Super Eagles have only managed two goals in two matches played so far, a 3-2 defeat to Congo, to Congo Brazzaville and a goalless draw against South Africa. As Channel Africa's Tony Ubani reports from Lagos, Nigeria, the US-based Seattle striker is working hard on securing a recall for the next qualifiers. Seattle Sunder striker Obafemi Martins has said he hopes his form in Major League Soccer 
will end him a Nigerian record. Martins again struck in Sanders' 3-2 home victory over Real Salt Lake at the weekend. The 29-year-old wants to help the club to the MLS title. Martin, who has scored 18 goals in 39 international matches for the African champions, was called up just once last year against Kenya in a 2014 World Cup qualifier. But the former Newcastle United and Birmingham City striker was omitted from the squad for the finals in Brazil by coach Steven Keshi. Still in soccer news, former FIFA official Jerome Champagne has formally announced that he will stand against a blatter in next year's presidential elections of the world governing body. The Frenchman, who is a FIFA director of international relations, announced in January that he intended to run for presidency, the most powerful job in world football, but then confused many observers with his comments regarding Blatter. At the launch at his press conference, Champagne declared that he did not believe that he could beat Blatter and that he was undecided about whether or not he would run if Blatter was still a candidate. Blatter announced last week that he would seek a fifth term with UEFA President Michel Platini, having already stepped down from the race. The Kenya national basketball team Both men and women will travel to Uganda this week ahead of the forthcoming Zone 5 Basketball Championships to be hosted in Kampala. The teams were trimmed to 12 players each after the build-up matches on Friday at the Nyayo Stadium in Nairobi. Channel Africa's Francis Mutege is in Nairobi, Kenya with more details. The Friday ties doubled up as fundraisers to support their trip to Uganda. During the action, the men's team defeated a select team of foreign players, beating them 62-50, while the women team sailed past Nairobi Select with a 50-41 win. Championships scheduled for September 21st to 30th in Kampala, Uganda, will involve teams from the region. Both the Rwanda men and women teams started residential camps last Tuesday in readiness for the championship scheduled for September 21 to 30th in Kampala. However, there are doubts about the Rwanda ladies team participation because of financial woes. That's who spotted this hour. Stay tuned on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. All right, that's how we wrap up the program. Thank you for joining us here on African Dialogue. Remember, we come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. What do you think about this judgment? Do you agree with the lawyers? They agree with the judge. Uh, let us know your thoughts. SMS us on plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. That's our SMS number, plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. Now, as usual, I always leave you with the proverb of the day. Now, we have a Ugandan proverb today. It states that the people who steal your millet at night are often the same people who help you look for it the next morning. I like that. So you must be aware. You must be aware every day. Be aware of who you are chilling with. Who are your associates? Hey, Rev, don't mess with me, man. Don't steal my stuff at night and pretend that you're my friend during the day. But anyway, that's our technical producer. Thank you to him, Rev. He did a great job this hour. Time for us to wrap it up. Until tomorrow, God bless.